Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Last week, we spent time considering together that the most important thing we can do in our lives is to know God. And one of the things which we saw in the study was that knowing God is accomplished by our continually seeking Him. And I hope if you were here last week, you re-upped for seeking the Lord during the last few days. And if you have been seeking Him, I know He has made a huge difference in your life. But we did not really complete the thought of the Lord mediated through David as he was passing the baton to Solomon, his son who was to succeed him as king of Israel. So let's look again this morning at verse 9 and consider the latter part of that verse in terms of its importance to us fulfilling our purpose in life. Second first Chronicles rather chapter 28 verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. In 1958, Phil Spector A songwriter wrote the song, To Know Him is to Love Him. And it didn't have anything to do with the Lord as far as I know. Actually, it was inspired when he went back to visit the gravesite of his father after the tombstone had been placed. And it had those words. Those were the words that his family had chosen to remember Bill Spector's father. It was recorded and popularized, first of all, by the teddy bears. Any of you remember the teddy bears? It's a trio, two men and a woman, the woman being the lead singer. I don't know their names, I'm sorry. Kind of like the Kingston's trio in that era. I don't know their names either. Some of you are saying, who in the world is he talking about? Well, just hang loose a minute. We'll, we'll touch on something you'll see or understand too, as far as this song is concerned. Dolly Parton sang this song. And she did a beautiful job of singing it in her East Tennessee twang. I love to hear her sing. And then Amy Winehouse. Any of you ever heard of Amy Winehouse? She whines as she sings. I mean, it's just incredible style. But all these people have recorded the song. And each one has done it quite well, I might add. Or in the case of the trio, the teddy bears. The words go like this, to know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. Just to make him smile makes my life worthwhile. That could be true of our relationship to the Lord. To know him is to love him. It's inevitable. If we know him, we will love him. And the way in which we make him smile is to obey him. Jesus says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he goes on to say in that same part of John chapter 14, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And by the way, 
the context, which is always important when we study a passage of Scripture. We do disservice to the Word of God, and we find ourselves in error many times when we do not survey the context, what happens before, what's said before, and what happens afterwards, and what is said afterwards. And Jesus, in chapter 13, really gives us insight into what the commandments are that he's focusing on in this comment about if we love him, we will obey him, we will keep his commandments. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When Jesus begins to address the seven churches in Asia Minor, the addresses are recorded in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation. The first church which he addresses is the church at Ephesus. And you may recall that he begins by commending them. He says, I know your toil. I mean, they were hardworking people. He says, I know your perseverance. They lived in a difficult setting. It was hard to be a follower of Christ in Ephesus. There were so many forces of evil marshaled against them. He said, I also know that you will not tolerate false doctrine. He made all these commendations to them. And then he said to them, but I have this against you. This one thing that's not right. And it's a big thing. And this is what he says, you have left your first love. It's possible for us who know Christ to get so involved in religious activities, so committed to keeping up appearances, so committed to keeping the church up and running. And by that, I don't mean the real church. I'm talking about the institution of the church up and running, that we lose our love for the Lord. We lose it because we don't spend time with Him. Do you know that Jesus Christ has a table for two reserved for you and Him? Why do I say that? If we go just a little further... In the book of Revelation, the third chapter, in Jesus' address to the church at Laodicea, he says this. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him or her, and I will dine with him or her. That would suggest he wants fellowship. He's waiting on us to come to him regularly. We saw last week from First Chronicles sixteen eleven, seek the Lord and His strength, seek His presence continually. We should, with great eagerness, desire to know God, to be with Him. Imagine that. And if we are with Him, we really know Him. We will undoubtedly love Him, and we will express our love for Him by obeying Him, and that obedience will be expressed in the way in which we treat one another. God's priority for our lives is to worship Him. Not necessarily in a setting like this, although this is a place where we come to worship Him corporately. But His first priority for us is to worship Him privately. That is the first thing that He cares about for us. And secondly, 
service flows from that. It's no mistake that Jesus orders the great commandment in the way in which he orders. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. That's worshiping God. Would you agree? Then he threw one in for good measure. He'd been asked just to name the great commandment. Greatest, and he did. Then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So we're going to serve him by loving each other. Service that is honoring to the Lord, that puts a smile on his face, flows out of our worship of him. Service as a substitute for worship is idolatry. Activity, religious activity, may become the enemy of adoration for the Lord. Knowing God is accomplished by our seeking Him continually. And now we look at the rest of this verse of Scripture. Knowing God is accompanied by serving Him completely. Let's revisit the middle of the verse again. That we are to serve the Lord with a whole heart and a willing mind. The word whole is akin to the Hebrew word shalom, it's shalem. And the word whole is a word which means complete. So when the Lord says to us that if we really know Him, we're going to serve Him, and we're to serve Him with a whole heart, He's talking about a heart which completely belongs to Him. Wholeheartedness amounts to dependence upon an individual. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Listen, for apart from me you can do nothing. You can do nothing, Jesus says, apart from me. In other words, you have to have a wholehearted dependence upon me, commitment upon me, if there's going to be anything which comes out of your life that really matters. I've wondered about my lack of wholeheartedness more often than I like to think of. And I've questioned why am I less than wholehearted, sometimes half-hearted, in my commitment to the Lord, in my service. The reason for so much half-heartedness in me, and probably in you too, is unwilling service is due to a lack of time spent with the Lord. Wholehearted service comes from our time alone with the Lord. Now remember again what David wrote, and I mentioned just a moment ago. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. In the book of Psalms, the 16th Psalm, David writes these words. He says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. And we know that. We can't help but smile and rejoice in the real presence of the Lord. It's inevitable. But we put that together with Nehemiah 8.10 and we see the coupling of joy to strength. This is what God spoke through the prophet Nehemiah to the people. He said this, The joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So I am to seek the Lord and His strength. And where is that strength found most prominently? In your presence, there's not just some joy. There's not just a lot of joy. There is fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord. And from that fullness of joy comes the strength which we need to do the service that God would have us to serve Him with. I mentioned just a moment ago also. How Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And this a little bit later in John fifteen eleven, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete or full. What is he talking about? That whole matter of our having a wholehearted dependence upon the Lord. We are to serve the Lord with a whole heart and also a willing mind. Probably most of you could quote Philippians 4.13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And who might that be, by the way? It's Jesus, right? I love the way the Jerusalem Bible translates it, this very good translation, Roman Catholic translation. It says this, There is nothing I cannot master with the help of the one who gives me strength. I love that way of translating that. There's nothing... With the help of the one who gives me strength. And I invoke the presence of the Lord by praising the Lord, by spending time pursuing Him, wanting to know Him. And the result is, He strengthens me. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, The Lord is faithful. Don't you like that quality of the Lord? We are faithless. He remains always faithful. And He will give you strength and protect you against the evil one. Are you under attack from the enemy today? Well, here's how you find protection. You get to know the Lord. You spend time alone with the Lord, listening to the Lord, in an unhurried manner, looking into His face, not trying to get something from Him, but you want to be with Him for the express purpose of coming To know Him more intimately. Much of what appears to be wholehearted service in the church of Jesus Christ is what a man by the name of E.M. Bounds describes as mere earnestness. And earnestness really is that which could be described by what Paul writes to Timothy when he says about a certain group of people, they have a form of godliness but they deny the power thereof. And you know why that's true? It's because it's all for window dressing. It's all for impressing people rather than serving the Lord with a whole heart and a willing mind. Look again at verse 9. After David has given this order from God to his son Solomon, where he says, serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. And by the way, the word translated mind in the New American Standard, is actually the word nephesh in Hebrew. It means soul. And the soul is comprised of the mind, but there are other elements in the soul. The emotions are involved as well, and the will. The Scripture says, serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Perhaps, like me, you were reminded of 
what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12 about the Word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Judging or discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible is beautiful in the way in which it complements itself. Old Testament, New Testament, uniform message. And the Word of God is the voice of God. It's the mind of God put in print for us so we can hear what He has to say and make necessary adjustments in our lives. And the Word of God has the capacity to really put the finger on us when we are not genuine in our profession of faith in the Lord. We're just going through the motions. We're trying to make a splash in the eyes of other people. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, when the prophet went to the house of Jesse and he was surveying the sons of Jesse, we looked at this last week also, you may remember that seven sons came by and the Spirit of God said, Not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. He says, is there somebody else? He said, yeah, there's one other guy. He's out in the pasture tending the sheep. Go get him in here. He comes in. And this is what the Lord said to Samuel. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows the thoughts and intentions of all hearts. Not just mine or yours. But he knows the intentions and thoughts of all our hearts. This verse is usually applied to discourage our judging another's potential for God by that person's appearance. But there's another way to apply it. Whereas people tend to judge another's spirituality by the amount of religious activity that comes out of that person. Our God judges us and our spirituality by the motivation Behind our service. If a person's service is motivated by time spent with God, then that service is done with a whole heart in dependence upon God. Otherwise, it's no different from any other activity an individual involves himself or herself in. Ian Bounds, the man who speaks of the earnestness that is really not valuable at all in the life of a believer. He says, earnestness may be selfishness in disguise. He also says something that I meant to mention earlier, but I don't want to forget it. This is awesome. It's worth having come today to hear what Mr. Bounds wrote. He says, to be little with God is to be little for God. We will never reach that point of Impact the Lord using us to really change people's lives, to change our environment, if we settle for just a little bit of God instead of being completely, wholeheartedly in sync with the Lord. There's one king among the many kings of Judah who's rather inconspicuous. You rarely, if ever, have heard his name. You don't hear sermons preached on him. His name was Amaziah. This is what the scripture says about Amaziah. Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, he was a teetotaler when it came to breaking the law. He was 100% in 
to keep the law, every little bit of it. And then there's this sad statement that follows that statement that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But he did not do it with a whole heart. It's time that we really ask God to put in our hearts the desire to do whatever we do with a whole heart. So that we can really, really glorify Him. Now I'm going to finish the message. It's going to take me a few minutes to do it. But I'm going to finish it by just exhorting you. The Holy Spirit's been working on my heart this week in preparation for this message. But to exhort you to remember whom we serve. It is the Lord whom we serve, isn't it? Remember the God of your father is what David says to his son Solomon before he passes the torch to him. Remember the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. This is what God's called us to. We know Jesus is God. Not a God. Not God Jr. Not a created God. He is indeed God. God the Son. And when Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, which evidently was populated with many who were slaves, and they were free to come to the place of worship, evidently. Their level of slavery was not like the history that we have in our nation of slavery. But he says to them, as it related to their serving their masters, and don't you know they chafed under serving their masters Slavery must be the most denigrating of all places a person might find himself or herself in. But this is what he said to them. He said, in effect, remember whom you serve. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Jesus is our boss. Virtually everyone in this room has a boss. Even if you're retired, you've got a boss. Right? Somebody's trying to boss you. It's just life. We all like to boss other people around. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my favorite coach I ever had in sports. And the thing I began to meditate on was what made him my favorite coach. Well, one of the things that made him my favorite coach is... He made a winner out of me. Our team was always successful. It's enjoyable to win, isn't it? Let's think about Jesus. What does the Scripture teach us about our life in Christ? It says many things, but in the interest of time, I'm only going to mention one as it relates to victory. In the book of 1 John, chapter 5, the apostle writes these words, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the grave victorious. And he will remain victorious throughout eternity. And he shares his victory with us. I love my coach, Coach Bud Garrett, because, well, he made a winner out of me. But there was a lot of work to help me get to that point. And, I mean, he just 
wore me out. Sometimes with a paddle, I might add. This is before the days when coaches and teachers couldn't paddle the kids that were misbehaving. Oh, for those days again when we had that back, right? He would just work us until we didn't think we could take another step. And then he would work us some more. Let me give you an illustration of this. When we come to the end of practice, I'm talking about football now. When we came to the end of the football practice, we always dreaded it because it was running sprints, probably 60-yard sprints in full gear in the hot weather. I mean, Memphis, Tennessee, where I grew up, football season is hot until about the last two or three weeks of the season. So he would say to us, down on one knee, boys, and we always hoped that he was going to let us go into the gym shower up and go home with not running any wind sprints. He'd give us a little talk about what he had observed in practice. And he says, now we're going to run. And we'd line up in two or three lines and we'd run. Run down to one end. He'd blow the whistle, we'd run down. Then we'd run back. We did about ten wind sprints. He said, down on one knee. And the boys were whining and crying. Some were throwing up and so forth. And then he would say to us, men, are you tired Yet, and with virtually no exceptions, everybody said, yeah, coach, we're tired. He said, well, you're not in shape. We've got to run some more. (laughs) So up we got, and we ran about ten more, and we got down on our knees again. He says, are you tired? And we said, no, coach. He said, then you're loafing. We're going to run some more. (laughs) There was no end to his method of helping us transition from being boys to men. Now, what I can tell you about the Lord Jesus, when you get to know the Lord, certainly He gives you victory. We all want that, don't we? But here's what He does too. He helps us to move from a place of immaturity to a place of maturity. We will never be mature. As human beings, but even as believers, unless we trust Him to mature us. And Jesus is the expert. That's the kind of person whom we serve. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve. And how are we to serve Him? Well, let me suggest five ways, really. Wholeheartedly, we've already talked about that. That's number one. Here's another way. By caring for the least among those who call on the name of Christ. We read from Matthew 25, that great teaching of Jesus on the final judgment, where the sheep will be separated from the goats. And the amazement that will be demonstrated by us who know Him, when He says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. I was sick, and you visited me. And do you remember what response we will give to him as his sheep? Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we take you in as a stranger? Lord, When did we visit you in prison? When did we visit you when you were sick? And Jesus makes this beautiful declaration 
in chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 40. When you did it unto one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. What does he mean? Well, let's be clear. He uses the word brothers. And we use brother this, brother that, brother that. I mean, in this setting, we can rather accurately call someone a brother or sister in Christ. But, you know, it's become common that people just say, what's up, bro, brother, this, that, and the other. And the people may not really be our brothers in the Lord. So, who is a brother of Christ or a sister of Christ? Well, fortunately for us, Jesus does not leave us in the dark in this matter. In Matthew 12, verse 50, as he looks out over a group of people, after people had come to him and they'd asked him, Who is your brother? And this is what he says, He who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother or my sister or my mother. So, when Jesus speaks about our doing it unto the least of these brothers of mine, he means literally our brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that mean we're to ignore people who do not know Christ? Not at all. In the book of Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes this. He says, Make every effort to do good to all men, but especially to those who are members of the household of God. We begin at home. We begin with our brothers and sisters in Christ in terms of feeding them, giving them water to drink, taking them in if they are homeless, ministering to them if they're in prison or in hospitals or sick in some way. When you've done it unto one of the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it unto me. If we were to go to Ezekiel chapter 44, when the prophet is speaking on behalf of God, and he's talking about what things will be like in the new heaven and the new earth, and he talks about how the priest will come near to him to serve him, to minister to him. Do you know, we have a ministry that we are to exercise in relationship to God. We minister to Jesus Christ. We serve Christ literally when we serve our brothers and sisters who are in need. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, John writes this, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. And we know that's a reference to Jesus, of course. You also, he says, ought to lay down your life for the brothers. He who has the world's goods, he goes on to write, and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against his brother. How can the love of God abide in him? Well, the answer is clear. It can't. If we love him, what are we going to do? We're going to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to share our material resources with them. The thing that really set Jerusalem on its ear after Pentecost it was the Holy Spirit, of course. It was Jesus ministering through the Holy Spirit, through the church. But when the people saw... I'm talking about the people who were on the outside looking in. There were hundreds of thousands of people there at that season between Passover and Pentecost. And they saw the way the people 
did not claim that anything that was in their possession was their own. Some people have tried to make that a case for communism. It, it won't fly. I don't have time to go into that. But what had happened, the Holy Spirit had moved in their heart. They'd come to know the Lord, hadn't they? And consequently, they spent time growing in their knowledge of God. And the result was they served the Lord wholeheartedly and with a willing mind. And they knew everything which they owned was from the Lord. And everything they had in their possession was His. And consequently, they shared what they had with others. This is what God's called us to. We're to minister to our brothers. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 14... Verse 31 says, He who oppresses the poor is a reproach to his maker. But he who is gracious to the needy honors him, that is, his maker. So, when we minister to poor people, particularly poor people in the body of Christ, to whom are we ministering? We're ministering to Jesus. That's who we're ministering to. And he goes on to say, In the 19th chapter of Proverbs, verse 17, He who is gracious to the Lord, I love this, He who is gracious to the poor, rather, lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him. Now, let me stop here just a moment. The Lord will repay you with interest if you love your brother who is poor, and you care for your brother and sister in Christ. If you share your life with them, And share your resources with them. Wow, this is awesome to think about. That we serve Jesus by caring for the least. A medical doctor by the name of Dr. Ferris was practicing medicine in Christian missions in Africa. Probably close to a hundred years ago now. There was a visitor from probably Great Britain or America, somewhere in the West, who came to visit him. And as Dr. Ferris was showing him work being done in a leprosarium, where lepers were being ministered to, and there were nuns who were working there, they came to a particular patient, and the disease had deformed this patient. He was hideous to look at, horrifying. And as they came to this man... The nun who was caring for him was caring for his oozing wounds. And the man, when he saw this person, he was aghast at the deformity and the ugliness of this person. And he just said without thinking, as we're apt to do, he said, I wouldn't do that for $10,000. And the nun turned and looked into his face. And she said, I wouldn't either. I'm doing it to Jesus. That's the way we're to minister to people. In Cook County Hospital, which is the public hospital in Chicago, there is a brother in Christ who goes up every Saturday and he goes to the men's ward. And he has a little kit with him. He has a razor and some shaving cream. He has toenail clippers and nail clippers. He has little scissors where he can crop the ear hairs, and, God forbid, the nose hairs out of people like me, you know? But this man comes and he ministers to people that nobody want to have, nobody wants to have anything with. Why is he doing it? 
He's being like Christ. That's why He's doing it. He's understanding that when He takes care of the least of these, He's caring for Jesus Himself, particularly if they know the Lord. We're to serve Christ by caring for the least of those who know Christ and by serving them in love. The Bible says in Galatians 5.13, listen carefully, keep on serving one another in love. You know the word love, it's that uniquely New Testament word, agape. And it means this, the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. That's what real love is. And we're to do it perpetually, continually, keep on serving. Serve is the way it's translated normally, but it's a present tense command in the Greek. That means keep on doing it. So not only are we to serve Christ by caring for the least of his brothers and sisters, but also serving others in the body of Christ in love. In addition to that, we're to serve Christ by exercising our spiritual gifts. You might say, I don't know my spiritual gift. Well, you can learn what it is if you'll read the Scripture and ask the Lord to show you what it is, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and even 1 Peter 4. We're going to look at one verse in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, and couple that with 11. We're only going to look at verse 10 together. 1 Peter 4:10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it how? in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Spiritual gifts have been given to all those who know Christ. And they are for two purposes. To glorify God, that's the primary purpose. A close second is to serve the body of Christ, for the building up of the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Christ gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. For what purpose? To equip the saints. You. He gave people like me, pastor types, who have a gift for teaching the Word of God to be used to build up the body of Christ. And here's the reason for it. For the service ministry of the church. It's the word service that's translated ministry in most translations for the building up of the body of Christ. We are a team we, you and I and all those who make up this church, we are a team. The Lord has put us together and He has equipped us with the gifts. He wants us to learn what our gifts are. And the purpose includes our serving one another. So don't be delinquent in the pursuit of what your spiritual gift is, the power that's necessary for the proper exercising of that gift, that being the power of the Holy Spirit, and look for those opportunities in the body. Ask God to give you opportunities. We're to serve Jesus by caring for the least of these brothers of His, by serving them in selfless love, by exercising our gifts in our service to them but also by following the example of Jesus. I wish we had time to go to John 13 and read that whole story where Jesus is washing the dirty feet of His apostles. They were too high and mighty to get down on their knees and take the attire of a slave, take the basin in the water and wash the stinky, dirty feet of one another. But Jesus did it. And He says in John 13:15, I have given an example to you. 
that you should do as I did to you. Do we have that kind of humility that we would serve each other that way? Well, Jesus is in us. His life flows through us. He is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. One of those things is serving each other in the way in which He served His band of apostles that evening, all of whom were going to abandon Him. One was going to betray Him. We follow His example. In Luke 22, in that same time frame, Jesus says, if you you want to be the greatest, then... Be a servant, and he used the word slave, actually. Be a servant. And don't do it casually or occasionally. Do it all the time. That's what he's saying. Because, here again, the word servant and serving is a word which means continually serving. Now, we're to rejoice in our service. The Bible says in the Psalms, 100 actually, It says, bring your praises, bring your thanksgiving to the Lord at the place of worship and serve the Lord with gladness. Now, let me ask you a question. How would you rate yourself in that regard? Do you serve the Lord with gladness? I have to admit there have been a time or two I've served Him with madness. Not that I was crazy. I mean, I may be a little bit crazy, but... You know, I mean, I've done it. I've just sort of begrudgingly served. I've often wondered, Lord, do I do anything with a proper motive? This is sad to admit, but that's what I ask the Lord. Would I do this, Lord? Would I go to the hospital and visit somebody who's sick if I were not a pastor and getting paid for it? Would I go and... Share the gospel with someone if I were not a pastor and I'm getting paid for. I mean, I ask those questions. I really won't know until you fire me or I retire. I don't. I really won't know. I know I did those things joyfully before I was getting any money for doing it. So I hope I've done some things properly, wholeheartedly, as unto the Lord. But we need to rejoice in the Lord always. The Bible says, "I will say it again, rejoice." We need to. Serve the Lord with gladness. Do you have joy in your heart? Serving the Lord. If we're alone with the Lord, what does that mean? In His presence, there is how much joy? Fullness. Are we ever out of His presence? We can get out of His presence by our own choice, but how frequently are we to pursue His presence? Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence. How often? Continually, wherever we move, if we're abiding in Christ, we're in the presence of Christ. And in His presence, there is fullness of joy. We can serve the Lord with gladness. I hope you're being excited a little bit about this matter of serving the Lord. Remembering that we've got to seek Him first. That's most important. If we're not doing that, we can forget about all the service we're doing. It's going to be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. There's going to be a big pile of ashes by my life and yours if we're just doing it to make points with God. It's coming out of a heart that is a result of knowing the Lord. Then certainly we're going to be people whose lives will have eternal weight 
an eternal value. God says through the prophet Amos, Seek me and live. And then the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Would you bow your head? You know, the Lord's near. He's here this morning. We sense your presence, Lord. And he's issuing a challenge to you and me not to be just casually pursuing him, but to make it our ambition to know him and then to serve him wholeheartedly. Would you, in the privacy of your heart, have the courage and the humility to say to Jesus, Lord, I want to know you and I want to serve you with a whole heart. Would you do that? And would you say to the Lord, Lord, I, I must depend on you completely if that's going to happen. Lord, you know me. You know how wishy-washy I am. And how I get fired up and then I lose the fire. I'm tired, Lord, of having to come back again and again and again. So, Lord, please help me to be consistent in my pursuit of you. I'm calling on you, Lord, today because you are near. And I believe what you say, that he who calls upon your name, Lord Jesus, will be saved. Thank you, Lord. Amen.